Hello and welcome to Diminishing Returns. This week we are joined by our friends, one of which is me. <laughs> I don't know what I'm trying to say here, but we are we are doing another combo episode with the British Sitcom History Podcast. So uh, joining me, Alan, as always, is Sol. Hello. And our guest, Gareth. Calling it marvellous, eh? <laughs> is that your Cockney accent? Yeah. Hello. <laughs> Uh, we are we are covering today. We're covering the film spin-offs of Till Death Us Do Part because Gareth and I covered Till Death Us Do Part the series on the British Sitcom History Podcast recently. Mm. And so, as always, when we look at the film spin-offs, we bring Sol in uh, mm. to uh, to lend his film uh, critical eye, <laughs> and also because you like a good uh, sitcom spin-off film, don't you, Sol? I do. Yeah, I do. I, I have quite uh, fond. Uh, attachment to the Till Death Us Do Part film. It was one of the first, one of the only British sitcom films that I watched in my big attempt to watch all of them that uh, mm. wasn't completely shit. <laughs> um, <laughs> you, you just watched the first one then? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm not sure I agree with your assessment there, but I do think they do something interesting with it. Whether or not it's shit is another question. But but this uh, you know rather than just sending them on holiday, they uh, they do this kind of anthology, retrospective mm. type thing, don't they? It's an interesting take. The holiday thing was more of a what seventies kind of trope. I don't think they yeah. really started doing that in the sixties at this point. No one had figured out you could just do that yet. Maybe people didn't go on holiday in the sixties. I don't know. Well, it certainly was more of a seventies thing. Yeah, yeah. To, well, foreign holidays anyway. Yeah. I think the Garnets wouldn't have gone on a foreign holiday. That's for sure. Yeah, judging from these films, the 60s was just a totally different world. It was crazy. Mad. Can't believe it. <laughs> well, you know the beginning of this film was set in the 40s. That well, that as well. <laughs> not that old. It's not that different, though, is it? It's, it's, um, it's not a world of difference when they jump from the 40s to the 60s in the film. Well, not for Alf Garnet. I think if you were, you know, if you were in your sixties in the sixties, it probably wasn't all that different. You weren't swinging if you were, you know, working on the docks <laughs> for exactly. minimum wage. Okay, well, let's let's just um, get a, get a little bit of an intro here. Let's uh, pre-see what we're doing. So, the series of Till Death Us Do Part started in nineteen sixty-five uh, and ran for three series, and then went on hiatus. And basically, it stopped. It did come back eventually, but that was never a plan. And in that time, they uh, they did a spin-off film, as the standard procedure was, and then a few years later they did a second spin-off film. Were both films before the series came back? Yes. Right, okay. So the first film is just after the series ended, and the second film is just before it came back. So yes, that first film was very much in that general ethos of, oh look, this is a successful TV product, let's make a film version, people mm -hmm. will go and see it at the cinema. Yeah. And the second one seems to be very much in that later mould, of sitcom films where it was a small production company who was like, oh, maybe we can make some money out of this. Let's yeah. do a sex comedy and slap a recognisable character in it. Yeah. <laughs> I, so. Now, you've repeatedly referred to the second one as a sex comedy, and I, I really Well, obviously don't... it's disappointing it's, on that. It's, it's, it's virtually a confessions film. It's, it's, it's a ladder away from confessions of a window cleaner. Confessions of a Scouse git. Sol, so, so you, have you ever watched any of those confessions type films? I'm afraid not. I I know of them. Um, no, well, I wouldn't consider myself an expert, but but you know the ones that I've seen, the the bits that I've seen, I think the second, what, what's it called, the second one, the 
the Alf Garnet saga, isn't it? That's what the second one's mm, called. Yes. I think yeah. it definitely falls into that category. Although, of course, you know, if our listeners haven't seen it, it uh, rest assured that it's not Alf Garnet who's having all the sex. It's uh, it's the Randy. <laughs> that Skat would actually kid. be funny. That's well, there's the, not. That would be good. There's there's a bordering on sex scene which is alf garnet but everything else is kind of implicit all oh, these two are having an affair but i mean i guess we'll get there later on it's, it's... oh he definitely he wakes up in bed with the woman yeah the exactly he's obviously he wakes up in bed after shagging the... yeah exactly yeah but sex comedies don't show any sex what do you think this is the i thought they Channel showed five. sex it's you just saw robin asquith's bum hanging out of a window <laughs> exactly <laughs> We don't see any bums in it. We don't see any bras flying off with a whistle going. Whoop. That's true. There's not even a. There's not even boobs. Actually, yeah, yeah right. You're right there. <laughs> well, it's, let's let's yeah. Let's anyway, start we'll with the first one. Yeah. yeah. So, so as we said, the, the we've we've dealt with this before. You know, the the challenge of turning a, a half hour sitcom into an hour and a half film seems to elude most uh, producers and writers. <laughs> But, uh, yeah, they, they do something a little bit different here. It, it doesn't really work as a 90-minute script in any way, mm. but at least it feels like they've done something. And what they've done is, is set it as a prequel. Yeah. So instead of going into the mid-60s with uh, Alf Garnet and, his, and then his swinging son-in-law, yeah, it, which... it, it is the the early well. It's actually the thirties. Just a war is about to be announced, which makes it all the more confusing that it's the second one that's called the Alf Garnet Saga. Yeah, that, that would have been an appropriate name make... for this first one. Yeah, completely. yeah, that second film is not a saga in any way. Is it? <laughs> yeah, I think the problem with this film is, is it starts and they're in the cinema as war is being declared. They're watching the news on the on the on the screen, and 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 you think, okay, this is going to be a wartime prequel. And it sort of is, but the the way the film is broken up is into sort of ten minute chunks where something will happen, and then we sort of skip forward for a few years, mm. and then we see another scene, something else happens, and it's almost like Alf Garnet living through the last twenty years. But the problem yeah. with that is, it's just it, it feels like a set of sketches rather than a film. I, I yeah, should, you know, yeah, he's the yeah. thread, but but there's no there's no actual plot to follow other than Alf Garnet's awful and he's wrong about everything. Can we um? <laughs> Can we give some context, I guess, for, uh, yeah, what is uh, Till Death Us Do Part? I mean, you know, I'm aware of it as this old school sitcom, which is oft cited. I think nowadays it largely exists in the zeitgeist as some pro-Brexit twat on Twitter will have an Alf Garner avatar and sort of (laughs) hide behind it instead of using their real name, and they'll... (laughs) harass modern comedy writers with things along the lines of oh you you know you can't make comedy like you used to you know can't say anything these days that's kind of what i'm aware of uh, till death us yeah. do part through it's it, it's it's become a poster child for saying it as it is in quotation marks racism well, that, bigotry that's the, but that... in the sense of this character was co-opted by people who perhaps missed the original intent or point there i I know the my understanding is certain people involved got quite unhappy with how the character kind of got away from them in in later life and either sort of tried to distance or or reclaim somehow is is that at all well yeah i mean the the basic setup is yeah it's this family dynamic as a so alf garnet and his wife and then their adult daughter and her husband who lives in the same house so that's your and basic it's a, setup. And it's, it's a British sitcom, we should we should add, in case that's not clear from us being course, joined yes. by the British <laughs> sitcom history podcast. Yeah, historical. Yeah. yeah. 
So yeah, it's set in working class London in the sixties. Mm-hmm. And so the, the 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 whole tension of the situation is this old school working class Tory and his young the younger generation who are these swinging sixties liberal um, you know, socialist left left wing socialist, yeah, Bo- mm. and borderline communists uh, with with some of the things that it says. So it's these two very extreme ends, and so obviously they clash. But they're very much um, they're labour. You know, it is very labour. Yeah, but labour right? when it was labour, not like post nineties labour. <laughs> That's what I mean. Nowadays, nowadays, I think those characters <laughs> would be, you know. Left of me, well, I, well are you fa- are you familiar, Sala? I don't know how familiar you are with, but Tony Booth, who plays the son-in-law in the show, is the father-in-law, or was before he died, was the father-in-law of Tony Blair. He's Shereen <laughs> Booth's father. I didn't know that. <laughs> yeah, so there's a very direct link yeah. in real life as well. Yeah, <laughs> because he was he was very much a left-wing sort of young firebrand, mm. uh, and so obviously imparted that into his uh, daughter. But <laughs> I mean. So to me, having seen, I think, one episode of the show to give myself a little bit of context, and then this film, it really struck me like the dynamic of this show was, you know, the setup is, it's your kind of polar opposites, isn't it? It's your two ends of the spectrum who are put in a situation together and they clash, and that's where you get your comedy. Um, And... I don't know how much that remained the the sort of setup, the premise, but it certainly seems to be what this film is sort of about. So, so the, the the dramatic tension of the sitcom is basically between Alf and his son-in-law, the Randy Skarsgård. Now, because we go back in time until the last, the end of the film, the, the Randy Skarsgård in there, and so yeah. <laughs> we have to we have to create that tension by in every scene there's a there's a different antagonist so during the war yeah. there's a there's a soldier who's occupying their street and then it's just the random people Brian Blessed isn't it Brian Blessed mm. yeah Brian Blessed plays the soldier um, Brian Blessed attractive What's without that the beard young and without well, a beard a, yeah. a, a, it's, it's relative it's very... all relative to <laughs> no in very, the film um, he is he is desirable very striking he's, he's young a sexy man. soldier yeah yeah mm. still got a bit of a frog face don't he got very piercing eyes but but the point is if we are saying that this one of the strengths of the sitcom is this antagonism between those two characters you can't remove one of those characters and expect it all to go off smoothly <laughs> or recast them with someone and well, change the character we'll completely. get to that in the second film right? <laughs> yeah well but that, I but mean... that's my point you 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 get you get this conflict between alf and, why, why can't i remember the son-in-law's name i can't keep calling him skeskit Mike, you get the you get the um, uh, you get this this antagonism between Alf and Mike, but then without that, you're just left with Alf. Yeah, just shouting into the void. It's a formula, and mm. it's a formula they've manufactured for the sake of a sitcom. You know, I, I don't know. I'm not familiar enough with the show to say how refined that formula became or was by well, the as, time that as they as made the this show film. went on, as the show went on, Tony Booth certainly checked out. Uh, he was there. He was taking the paycheck, but he wasn't really. Uh, he didn't really care anymore. Mm. And I think Johnny Spate, the writer, also they just started focusing on this Alf Garnet character. It was a really big, fun character. Not fun as in the personality, but you know, fun to play. Lots of stuff yeah, you can yeah. do with him. And so they carried on. And so then they did a whole loads of stuff after the original series as well. They did sequel series, and uh, even like he did a one man show. 
um, 30 years after the show started, he was still doing the character. Um, And so it did have a life after that, but it became the Alf Garnet show, you know, really. And Mm. that's what you get in the first half of this film. Mm. It's like, oh, well, we like this character. We like writing for this character. We like playing this character. And we just, it's just fun to have him in conflict with everybody. And what's what's the next thing he's going to say? Yeah. But I don't know if that is fun really it's just <laughs> annoying and a man shouting at things i mean to go back to what i was saying before about how you know it's become the poster child for racism in the old days being fine i i think for the sake of our international listeners or just you know younger people who are going to be more familiar with american stuff um and i know you you touch on this in your uh brit com history episode oh, as well get it right to go over it <laughs> I was trying to think of a nice abbreviation. It's a mouthful. Britcompod. 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 There we go. All right. In your your Britcompod two parter, uh, you do touch on how they remade the uh, sitcom for America as um, Family Matters. Was it? Was that the right no, one? All in the family. All in the family. That's it. It was Archie Bunker who um, has gone on to inform. You know characters like Cartman in South Park I I know they've cited Archie Bunker there you know any kind of reprehensible bigoted character in comedy has probably a direct line to um, Archie Bunker and therefore a direct line to Alf Garnet and um, you know I think the the through line with the more modern approach is it's very clear while a lot of people will also miss the point of Cartman in South Park and be like ha 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 Jews if you actually watch South Park with any sort of intelligence, it's pretty clear cut. Like they're not condoning what Cartman says or does. Like that's why it's a comedy. <laughs> it's not just like a racist lecture. Yeah, I, I, I don't know. I, I think like Till Death Us Do Part was somewhat controversial. I think because that that line of how clear cut it is that this guy is the butt of the joke perhaps got a bit blurred Mm. at times and i I think you Mm. see that between these two films i i would say the first film i never get the sense that you're really meant to be on alf garnet's side um i think he's always presented as a prat whereas the second film again not to get too ahead of ourselves i feel like it kind of forgets that that's its mission statement Mm. and it just kind of ends up casually condoning everything that he says and does by well let's come back to that second film because i think the two films are very different but Mm. Yeah, certainly in the are. first film, the problem the problem with Alf Garnet is that he's he's completely unsympathetic. And, you know, unless you unless you agree with him, he, yes. it's not it's not you can sympathise with someone who has disagreeable views, like Graham Lennon. <laughs> <laughs> <He's>, <laughs> I'm going to pretend you didn't say that. <laughs> if we are looking back, you know, it was a different time. His racist views. Now, in the 1960s, he would have been considered a bit racist, but his views were not that far out of the mainstream. And, you know, mm. a lot of people supported Enoch Powell. And so he was, you know, he was like uh, uh, close enough to the mainstream to be able to poke fun at. Whereas now, he, you know, his his views are considered way, way too out there and, and so not mm. comic fodder. But that is not my point. My point is that even in 1965, he was a horrible man. There's... Uh, that whole retrospective of the last 20 years in that film, we get no indication of any affection or love between him and his wife. 
No, mm. no relationship yeah. between him and his daughter. He's just an it's just a, an awful <laughs> man, and that's the fundamental problem with Till Death Is Do Part for me. I, 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 I hate him. He's horrible. I, going off the first film as kind of you know Till Death Us Do Part virgin essentially like i i don't find him a completely reprehensible figure i i just look at him as oh it's you know he's this poor figure of a kind of shit hand dealt to him in life he, you know people did get stuck in marriages that they weren't particularly overjoyed about back then still do now he's living in squalor he doesn't know any better i don't know to me to me it felt like watching a, a kitchen sink drama from the same era like a ken loach film but it's kind yeah. of got moments of comedy in it i got that i got that as well a kitchen sink drama is really mm. uh, a good comparison to the series in general because it is really social realism and this is supposed to be mm. a little snapshot of realism and i think that is partly its strength but also a problem because <laughs> it means you're creating a very realistic protagonist here in Afghanistan who is a, an unpleasant person mm. and that's the problem is an unpleasant person that like oh god i know that a guy like that yeah and you know it's like the person who when you're in the pub and you see him hanging out the bar on his own because everybody hates him and he starts walking over to start talking to you you just think oh for fuck's sake <laughs> get <laughs> this guy out <laughs> like yeah because- why would i want to spend 90 minutes in the cinema with him you know yeah, and in which case you don't want to just watch uh, watch a film about them, yeah. or, or especially watching a series. Which, like we say, we we kind of always address this in our show. These things were made to be watched once a week, and you probably never see them again. Maybe it get repeated. They're not designed to be having a box set and watch uh, which is, which is eighteen episodes it. over three days, which is you know what I would. Do. I think I think you can have pretty reprehensible characters in comedy, though. I, I don't know. Are, are you guys, Alan? You've watched Always Sunny in Philadelphia, right? I mean, that Only that a little is bit, really not too much. I mean, it takes a while to kind of find its feet that show, but there, I mean, that's a great example of. I would say once it finds its stride, I'd say it's an excellent, excellent show. But they are five loathsome, horrible, horrible, utterly no redemption to be found in them characters. And yeah, I like spending time with them and watching the antics they get up to. I find them very funny. It's um... but I think with Till Death Has Do Part, you see the consequences of his actions as well because his family that has to live with him. Yeah, it's not it's not four unpleasant characters. It's one unpleasant character and three victims. Yeah, you know what? In in Always Sunny, nine times out of ten, those same characters will have their comeuppance. You know that mm. someone will call them out. Something bad will happen to them at the end. Their schemes don't work, and maybe that is the problem here. Maybe Alf Garnet never quite has, I don't know, the rug pulled from under his feet. The worst thing yeah. that happens is someone goes, oh, piss off, and he goes, oh! Yeah. Like, it's... Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. He is regularly humiliated. So in the in the film, I mean, you know, it basically every yeah. scene starts with him mouthing off about something, and then ends with some authority figure proving him wrong and humiliating him and then we freeze frame yeah. and move to the next sequence that's that's yeah. essentially the film but there's no consequence yeah. of that he's humiliated and then he goes home and shouts at his wife yeah i mean again in in this first film i i never felt like it felt like he and his wife were kind of bickering but it, it didn't feel like either one of them was particularly nastier to the other one than each mm. other do you know what i mean it just felt like it's this couple that are sick of each other well alan made the point in our when we were talking about that i think this is you correct me if i'm wrong here alan but this is explicitly said in the series he considers himself a good husband because he doesn't hit his wife and in 1965 that's probably true unfortunately 
you, you <laughs> know, that's as good as she could expect. Yeah, which is a, which is a damning indictment, really. But again, that's that's where context changes. That was fifty years ago, and you know, mm. I, I think I think it's reasonable to expect a husband to, to have a higher standard of uh, mm. <laughs> than than that. You know. Yeah, I mean, I I I feel like it does kind of puncture his nonsense though like, i'm just looking at the poster for the film now and it's um i don't know if you've seen the poster but it's, it's him um, standing up in the bath yeah it's, it's him stood up naked with a british flag behind saluting so at a glance very kind of like oh yeah you know rule britannia his kind of thing but then yeah he's naked and it's it's the moment from the film sort of being depicted more artistically perhaps um it is a, an artist you know painting of that scene but yeah it's the moment where he's listening to the radio and then the the national anthem comes on so he stands up and salutes it but you know mm-hmm. he's naked and that's kind of you know making fun of his whole you know and it's it's not hilarious or biting satire but i think for 1968 which this film came out in that's that's pretty solid comedy for 1968 it's you know yeah and that that's just a solid example of what this film kind of does throughout. I think it does kind of, you know, walk that line for the most part between this guy is racist, but also, look, he's a fool and we're not condoning his actions. But that's my point. When we talk about, when people talk about Alf Garnet, they talk about racism. That That is not who Alf Garnet is. Alf Garnet is a really horrible, unpleasant man. And, and racism is a symptom of that. Yeah. He... He, the, you just mentioned alcohol there, and he's he's almost always drunk, and he's a, you know, a troublesome drunk. There's a scene where they get married, Rita and Mike get married. So we see the we see the wedding scene and the wedding party, and he nearly starts a fight. He then spills a drink all over Rita and her wedding dress, ruins her day, and and that's that's who Alf Garnet is. Yeah, he's a racist, but Alf Garnet is not a racist. That's that's not his defining feature. He's a selfish bastard. That's who he is. Yeah. yeah. And and again, like I can think of loads of horrible characters who you you do kind of enjoy in comedy. Who I think the difference is now that you bring it up. I think the difference is that those horrible characters tend to be a bit more Machiavellian or intelligent. So you almost start mm. to, you know, if if Cartman yeah. on South Park to pull him back comes up with some despicably evil scheme to make someone eat their own parents to get revenge on them. You 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 kind of sit back and admire the imagination and the the thought that's gone into their you know evil behavior whereas here it is just brutish stupid not particularly articulate uh articulate but then again i i i just come back to this being a film from the 60s and i i don't know i don't think that comedy had quite got to the point where we'd have you know someone feeding someone their own parents in an episode of a sitcom in the 60s well i think that's what I mean, where the, its strength is its weakness. I think this is a very realistic character. Yeah. I, I think if you went to a wedding in working-class London in the 60s, yeah, a pretty good chance the dad would be out, out of his face and yeah. would then throw up on someone's dress. You know, like, that's mm. not... Amazing. I think that's totally believable. But I think I would hate to be there yes. <laughs> and to see that and to yeah. have to live with that person. I don't think you'd have to go back to the 60s for that <laughs> well, exactly. solid chance. Though. I yeah. also hate people now as well. <laughs> I, 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 I mean, for me, like I say, it, it feels like a British classic slice of life, kitchen sink drama. It's a, it's a British Loach. tradition to be a drunken wanker. 
Yeah, and and for me, this film works on that level. It's just it's a slice of life, but it's a bit more palatable than a lot of those other grim, realistic films because ultimately this plays it relatively light-hearted and you know tries to get some laughs in there. And um, well, let, let me let me just clarify actually because we've we've ended up getting to this whole discussion straight away, which you inevitably do with Till Death Is Do Part. But actually, I think Till Death Is Do Part as a series and as a whole is quite good. It's mm. it's very funny at times. Uh, it, it can be very satirical. I I prefer the earlier stuff when Mike mm. is a bit more active, um, and it, I think it sort of dilapidates as it goes along. But everything mm. does. So I'm not too worried about that. And I think this film is a pretty good uh, example of the level of humor that you yeah. get in the series. It's just not. It's just not. It doesn't work particularly well as a film. But I think there's some really interesting stuff there. So just because I don't like the character. Doesn't mean there's nothing here that I don't that I like, you know. What I mean? Yeah, yeah. I, I that's certainly my read on it. Like I say, I've only seen the first episode, but this felt kind of like the show's formula working, but just kind of put into a a medium that perhaps isn't the best fit for it because it becomes a kind of meandering, very low stakes affair. But I think I think what well, I think sort of Gareth was getting at this earlier. Um, You've you've got a great setup here, set in the in the forties, and they've they've obviously they they have half the film in the forties. They they've got the props, they've got yeah. the yeah. set, like they've they've committed to that. But then, what do we get out of it? Well, I think that's a big part of what I liked about it. It's um again, it plays into this slice of life thing. I for me, this works as a real time capsule of oh, this is an account of the war ultimately from people who. Mm lived through it it's only like 20 years on that they've you know made this thing and Mm. to me that is a really interesting thing to to see and also what you're saying they've got the sets they've got you know all the production design for for this kind of uh period piece it's it's a surprisingly theatrical experience this film it's actually quite cinematic in how it's shot and Mm. put together it's not just like most of its contemporaries it's actually shot really nicely in ways and yeah you know it's within the limits of their their budget but i I was i'm always impressed i'd watched this before i watched it again for this recording and it's like oh this is this is again this is up there with your you know your ken loach movies of the era it's yeah. Well, yeah. did you notice uh, one particular shot that jumped out at me, where the camera—it's when it's being announced on the radio that Churchill is is becoming the new kind of war leader, basically the prime minister—and mm. the camera tracks in to uh, Alf Garnett's face, go and he's in the pub playing darts. It goes right up close up to his eyes, so you can just see his face, and then it immediately starts tracking back. And he's in his house, and he puts up a, a picture of Churchill. So one shot, mm. and to be honest, like relatively easily done. It, the only thing you can see of the pub is a back wall, so they've obviously yeah. just wheeled that out, and the set is in place. But you know, that's something. That's they're, they're trying to do something. You know, they. Yeah. And I don't think it really says anything. Did it feel like we were getting into Alf Garnett's head there? Not really. <laughs> I think it was a style of a substance. But hey, at least you're doing something. That's yeah. that's yeah, use, and- use your, use your uh, kit that you've got. And and to wheel out a, a comparison point there, you know, it, it was the last thing we discussed as a as a trio, uh, the Inbetweeners movies. Yeah, um, yeah. You know, the, they're made decades later, far more readily accessible. You know, filmmaking techniques at their disposal, and the one 
theatrical, you know, the, the one big cinematic touch of those films is the the sort of drone shot the <laughs> at credits. the start of the film. Yeah, yeah. like they yeah. splurge all this money in the opening scene. And then I guess in the second one, there's a big one take uh, yeah, kind right. of fantasy mm. sequence as J well. Fantasy. But they they put one scene up front in both of those films where they spend a bit of money, put a bit of effort in, and then the rest of the films are just shot like the TV show, really. Uh, maybe slightly nicer lenses and lighting, but you know, it's there's not that much imagination behind the camera. Um, and I think it's really nice here. This is a this felt like a real film. It, it doesn't just feel like, like so many of these Britcom movies are just. Oh yeah, can we use some of the same sets? Uh... So, for example, uh, the scenes in the pub felt um, just a lot better realised than in the series. Uh, when they're mm. on the street, they're just—they're all still extras uh, bobbing around in the background. But it just—it just felt more real. And then also there was a scene in um, using a tube station as a bomb shelter, you know, as an air raid, mm. and that—that that, fe- that was a—that that felt very beautifully shot, very well recreated. Yeah. But that also felt like. Okay, we're setting stuff in the forties. People remember this, so yeah, let's yeah, put yeah. something in where people go. Exactly. Oh my god, I remember that because mm. that scene has no relevance to anything other than mm. Alf Garnet gets into a fight with someone and he's yeah, a bit of a knob. Yeah. Like it's not relevant to the story, but mm. it, I think it's just there just to go. Hey, bit of nostalgia, blitz spirit. Hey, eh? mm. that'd be that'd be like making a film about the Tony Blair election victory now, <laughs> twenty five years. <laughs> yeah, but I'm I'm all for that. I think that's. I know most people don't experience film in this way, but a big part of what I love with film is a window into another culture. Mm. Um, I think one of the best ways to understand history, and obviously you can only do this for history going back about 100 years, is to watch films from that era or whatever country it is that you're trying to get a glimpse into. Like you, you You get such an insight into attitudes and things that aren't readily apparent if you just read about stuff on wikipedia or or even if you read about it in you know very well written textbooks um there's something about you know consuming the art from the era so going back to what i say about this being a kind of glimpse into the war from people who lived through it i i found this a far more interesting relic of of living through the war than any like war movie that i think i've ever seen um it's just a very and and i think it's like you say it's because it's about the details in the background it's not the Mm. focus they're not trying Mm. to say something about the war it's just kind of there and they're just kind of portraying it because because it was something that the the people who who were watching this film had lived through it it was yeah yeah it it, it wasn't a look at let us educate you it was let us remind you and I, and and this actually was educational for me when I first watched it. When I first watched it, I didn't know people were kicked out of shit homes in London and moved into Slum Essex. That's why I, yeah. yeah, I didn't know Essex was the way that it is because of that. But it, <laughs> you know, now I do. It makes sense. But yeah, so f- for me, as a kind of slice of life, a, a s- sort of snapshot into a different time and a culture. I, I think this is a really well, let's, interesting... Let's, let's talk about that, because we, we focused on the war, but then I, I, I picked out that sequence. So towards the end of the film, we see them... Um, yeah, essentially, they get the slums are cleared, and they lose their home, their family home, and they are moved out uh, to, to high-rise flats. And this was a time... This was the scene where I, I felt sympathy. I felt sympathy for Afghanistan. He was having yeah. his, his home taken away. And yet, exactly. even then, he managed to somehow ruin his, <laughs> his wife and, and daughter and son-in-law's life by just being an absolute arsehole about it and made a bad situation worse for them. They ended up moving out without him. 
I I think I I think I find him sympathetic enough in this film because yeah he does have his home taken away from him and he does get a really raw deal in that you know he he bought the home for uh 15 grand i believe it was that he paid for it and then they no, pay no, him no, 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 no. 15, three grand 1500 and 300 yeah. oh sorry 1500 <laughs> <laughs> but but this is an interesting discussion though sol because because i think you're right and and as i say i felt some sympathy at that point and objectively you are correct he's getting stitched up and yet I, I don't feel the same sympathy as you did because I just spent an hour thinking what a prick he was. So there's almost an element mm. of comeuppance. But, um, but as I say, I, I do wonder if you're letting knowledge from the rest of the show kind of yeah, quite possibly, cloud quite your possibly. opinion of him. Because I, I, like I say, this is really all I know this character from. And yeah, he is a prick in this film too. But I don't know. I, I, I think within the context of the film, there's enough to kind of just about get away with all right, he's not a great guy, but you know he is having a bit of a rough time, and mm. you know e- even even being stuck in this high rise flat at the end, like even then he's like, all right, I know it's normal to have your kids in the late twenties living at home in the sixties, but it, it's still like I don't know, it 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 felt like that must have been shit. He's he's got his daughter living with him and her boyfriend, and he hates her boyfriend, and they're in <laughs> yeah. a very small like flat together as well. It's just. Yeah, I mean, I'd get stressed out. I'd probably start not being <laughs> quite as extreme as him, but I'm sure, I'm sure there'd be some little sarcastic comments coming out at the dinner table. If, uh, but there's, would. but there's yeah. a reason that his daughter has ended up with a man like that. Yeah, because obviously she wants to rebel, but also that's the only male. Uh, personality type she knows, <laughs> so she's found <laughs> yeah. someone who is just as passionate and uh, arseholery, but the other side. <laughs> yeah, but, but yeah. designed to annoy her dad. Just speaking of like things of the time, so when we get into the sixties and we see uh, Rita, their daughter, like now grown up, supposed to be about twenty, I guess. I don't know if it's, if if this am I getting older, but all I could think was that. That dress she's wearing is extremely short. (laughs) Now, here's an observation for you. Here's an observation for you, right? Mm. So we get this, you know, the time shift. We're now in the 60s. And it's signaled to us that we are in the 60s because we get an exterior shot of the street. And there's a young woman walking up the street. It's not Rita. And we do this zoom in on her legs. She's wearing a mini dress. And it's a really leery male gaze moment. (laughs) <laughs> and and we sort of watch her legs move up the street. Then we cut to inside the house and we see the family. And sure enough, Rita is also wearing a, lo- a, a short dress and we can see her legs, etc. But here's my question, and I don't really know the answer. Why did we not get that leery look at Una Stubbs's legs? Why, why was it this extra walking up the street and then cut into the house? What 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 was that about? Might just be Una Stubbs going, well, no. <laughs> well, possibly. <laughs> Let's yeah. have a bit of respect, please. And just yeah, an have a bit of respect for me objectify that other lass well i think we'll we'll address this when we get to the second film but perhaps una stubbs does have some self-respect unlike some of the mm. people involved mm. in the second film mm. so, <laughs> so maybe maybe she was just like well no that's not what the character's about but yeah maybe that's just a a, a symptom of the time mm. she was she was the star so you don't ogle yeah. her in the same way mm. well it, kind of going into what you're talking about with just the 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 way they're dressed and so on. In both these films, I just kind of went bloody hell. Like the actors playing these kids are getting a bit too old to be doing this yeah. now. And then I, yeah. I, and obviously it's a different cast in the next one anyway. But but I looked up the ages of both of them, and it's like, oh no, they they were in their late twenties. They're like the right kind of age to be 
playing people in their 20s. But Well, they're supposed to be a bit younger, but yeah. But, yeah. but, but it, it just that... comes across like, they, they look older than me. Is that is, is that just people age differently about then? What is it? It's should have had two kids by then, you know, they're in the late 20s. (laughs) Is it because we associate... Is it because they're putting them in this ridiculous, like, 60s attire and they seem out of place wearing it and that makes them seem older? Like, it's never quite sat right with me. But then I don't know, I don't know if it would sit right in the show as well. It just, it feels so alien to me. And again, I reiterate, I suppose, the... The notion, this this kind of nineteen sixties working class um, thing, where it's very ordinary to just kind of live at home with your parents, mm. well into adulthood and well past you having kids of your own, just seems so mind blowingly alien to me. <laughs> but then again, that's kind of what I talk about with these being fascinating snapshots into a a, a culture that you. You know, that's not something that I learned in school, that that was normal. But the way it's, you know, it's normalised in this film and the On the Buses films that I've watched and various mm. other Britcom movies, like, that was obviously just part of life in the, in my the parents 60s. Live, my parents lived with my mum's mum when they first got married. And um, I, I think my, my grandparents also, I know they had children before they moved out of the family home too. So, you know, it was... It was a much more normal thing, a much more relatable mm. thing. Yeah, well, back in the day, when you got married, you moved into a a new yeah. home. But yeah. the problem is, you accidentally get pregnant, and so you have to get married a bit too quick, and you haven't got the money for it. Mm. <laughs> so <laughs> then you have to stay, stay with your parents. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, well, let's have, let's have a look. Just in terms of a plot of this first film, what else happens? Because the the basic plot is the war story, and then we have the kind of they're getting thrown out of their house, but it never really coalesces into a proper narrative. It's like we say, it's yeah, it's it's just a it's just a meandering slice of life, which again is why it felt very like you know a lot of kitchen sink dramas I've Mm. seen. There's not really any sort of thrust or or drive to it. It's just eh, it's a load of stuff happening, and it's all Mm. quite disconnected. Um, and I, you know, to to an extent, I can go with that because you know, look, I'm a, I'm a stickler for story structure, but this film is what eighty something minutes long, and it's light hearted. I, I I can just kind of go with all right, all right. Each scene's kind of what it is, but yeah, it's definitely a weakness of the film. Like it, a whole film set during the war or with a clear beginning, middle, end would have been preferable. And there, there's a lot they could have done. Like they could have latched onto the whole. Alf's been drafted, and now he's got to get out of that thing, which happens in the film. But in the film, yeah, it's just no kind way. of glossed. Yeah, he, he gets it's just a letter. to show that he's a hypocritical coward. Yeah, yeah, exactly. He gets a letter drafting him. Then there's one scene later on where he's like, "Oh well, I, you know, I couldn't, I couldn't go. I begged him to let me go. Begged him, but they wouldn't let me. It was too important here." And it's like, right, that's dealt with like that. That could be the the you know the film that that could what Jake some as actual he tries to get out of uh, out of the yeah. War. Yeah. And that could get you could get some actual sympathetic emotion out of him there. It's perfectly reasonable to not want mm-hmm. to go to war and die, but then it is also quite cowardly. But then I think you know, cowardice is a very understandable, empathetic yeah. like emotion. Yeah, it like, would have made know, him a lot know. more relatable. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If yeah, if he didn't go around going on about how brave he was, <laughs> exactly, exactly, exactly. Yeah. exactly. 
Um, so it just feels like a missed opportunity, I guess. It, like I say, it's a snapshot of life to me. It's a slice of life. But I think it is a very bleak film. And I think it plays like a really depressing, bleak film. I'd like to think that's by design. It's kind of like, look at this sordid little life that this character and the characters around him are living, and it's sad, and maybe maybe that's me projecting onto the film in a way that's not mm. inten- intentional. Maybe I'm supposed to think, huzzah, Alf Garnet, what a laugh. I don't think you're supposed to think, oh, he's got a great life, but you're not supposed to look at him and go, God, what a miserable, horrible life. I agree. But <laughs> the, the, the core sure, audience though? for this is. <laughs> but again, to like to go back to it's always sunny in Philadelphia and things like that. I think you are supposed to ultimately take away like this is not a bunch of characters to aspire to. They have a very sorry existence, and it's really <laughs> quite bleak if you think about it. But yeah, the, the problem with that is you think that of Alf, it's fine. But you think that of his wife or his daughter, and it's just sad. It's just tragic because they've mm. they yeah. kind of they're haven't strong, got the same. Trapped freedom of movement that he has i know he doesn't have that much either but yeah yeah but look but as we as we're dealing with the context of the time uh one of the little sketches we get is uh they go to the world cup final in 1966 oh yeah 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 and that's another another exactly what i'm on about um encapsulation of a, a moment in history from people who lived through it from yeah. very close to the time it's like an east london obvi- forest gump isn't it and yeah, yeah. Happened, and, uh, well, that's it. Like, obviously, meant something to the chump. you know people involved. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and it and it's a good example because they just go to the football and watch the match, and and it progresses. It's not funny. Um, it's not. It's yeah. it's just a sort of what might have happened if these people went to the the match, yeah. and then they get drunk afterwards because they won. But to me, it plays almost like it's it's the one moment in the film where Alf and uh, Mike is it the mm. kid? Yeah, yeah. It's the one moment where they kind of come together and find a bit of uh, common ground and aren't at each other's throats. And because ultimately I, they're both blokes. Yeah, so, they, so they, they, they that's the it. That's together. what it's speaking to, isn't it? Yeah, and they in the series basically the only time they kind of get on is when they're drinking together or when they go to the football. And even then, you know, he's a scouse he spots Liverpool, so they they can have arguments about football, but that's okay. That's the whole mm. purpose of football in British society is to allow <laughs> men to have emotions uh, about oh, yeah. things. So it, you know that's the purpose it serves, and that is completely. Like, here's something that people can relate to, you as an audience. Like, oh, yeah, mm. I, that's mm. all my dad ever talks about. Football. But it, it, the football comes pretty dad, much but... in the third <laughs> act. And, I, you know, it, it's very messy. It's not handled as well as it might be. But I think it, it does kind of work to provide a degree of, like, closure. These characters kind of find their common ground, like I say. It, like, it does provide a little bit of structure. Now, I, I, the failing there for me is that I would like to see that between him and his daughter more than between him yeah. and his daughter's boyfriend, but, I, you know, I think that probably speaks to um, <laughs> gender politics of uh, when this film was made and the idea that, you know, more value being placed in uh, the relationship between the two men but but also bear in mind that we get we get the daughter's wedding like yeah. in, in every show that is the the unemotional uh, unavailable father's yeah. re- redemption moment where he sort of sits yeah. his daughter down and says he loves her and that she's beautiful and then cries as he walks her down the aisle and and that's that we don't even get that no he <laughs> just he pours a drink on her and pisses himself yeah yeah <laughs> well yeah so i mean yeah, to kind of just put a bow on it. Like I, 
I think Till Death Us Do Part, the film, is a kind of surprisingly sincere film. Mm. It, it's quite innovative, uh, or at least it's not. It's not a lazy film. It's not. I'd say the the vast majority of the sort of contemporary peers of this film were, you know, let's just remakes three episodes with you know maybe a new actor do it in color for the cinema like this is trying to do something um and yeah it's incredibly messy it doesn't fully work but i i do actually get a lot out of it and i would go so far as to say it's probably my favorite britcom movie from like the classic era before the modern era of comedy other Mm -hmm. than uh, I'm going to say I prefer Porridge, but that was, you yeah. know, t- 20 years on, 10 years on um, mm. that that film came out. Um, so, yeah, I give it a low seven, but a seven out of 10 for me. Mm. You know, I, I largely agree. I, I think it's it does it's not very well structured as a film, but I think it's true to the characters as we have them in the series. I think, yeah, you say it's it's trying to do something. It's having that prequel element is interesting. And so, yeah, you know, I largely agree. I gave it a six. Well, I think this has been an interesting conversation to me because, I, 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 you know, I didn't like it. But I think I am probably carrying a little bit of prejudice from having watched the TV programme. I'm trying to be, I'm trying to assess this as a film on its own merits, which is quite difficult. I, I think mm. it's really interesting your take about if we looked at this like a kitchen sink drama. It, you know, I think I, if, I think if I had, if I'd come into it thinking this was a kitchen sink drama, I would probably have enjoyed it more. Mm. But the, the, I, 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 it's a comedy, and it's not funny enough. The funny moments <laughs> don't outweigh the unpleasant moments. I also think yeah. the structure. The structure. I like the prequel idea, but I don't like the structure. I think it just feels sketchy and a bit jumpy, and that, that yeah. kind of as a film that that doesn't really work for me. It's a bit little bit oh, repetitive. Totally. So I'm gonna give it. A, I'm gonna give it five out of ten. Mm. One of the things I really liked about um, one of the, the repetitive bits that I really liked about the film was Alf going to sit in the outside toilet and talking to his neighbour Bill Maynard. Yeah, <laughs> that, that was a, that was a really lovely touch, and that felt that felt mm. like that would have been relatable to people in 1969. Mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. I love that. Yeah. Well, Bill Maynard, so he plays the neighbour Bert, and then he he went on when they brought the series back in 72, he played that same character a couple of times. Yeah. And then that, and then he was replaced by Alfie Bass when that character became a, a regular kind of every every episode mm-hmm. character. Uh, but yeah, Bill, Naymar, Bill Maynard, who I, th- I think from my age, I know him best as that bloke in Heartbeat. <laughs> he was in a sitcom called The Gaffer in the 80s, which I remember. Oh, he was in, he was um, in all sorts. Of, yeah, Selwyn yeah. Froggett and all, all sorts of mm. stuff. But yeah, that I think I know. But speaking of Heartbeat... Uh, Jeffrey Hughes uh, is is also in it. Now you see, this is this is where I'm I'm ten years older than you. Jeffrey Hughes was in Coronation Street. He was Eddie yeah. Yates in Coronation yeah. Street when I was a yeah, kid. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, he's in also. He actually he, the year after this, he was in Curry and Chips, which was written by mm-hmm. Johnny Spate. He was a regular in that, um, and he was a regular in Keeping Up Appearances. Of course, that was his sort mm-hmm. of in terms of sitcom is probably what he's best known as. Uh, but yeah, he's. I think he's supposed to be Mike's brother. He calls Mike our kid, so I reckon yeah. he's supposed to be the brother. Um, Michael Robbins plays the barman, um, both with a wig uh, in the in the forties and then without a wig in the sixties. And this was the year before On the Buses started. So he plays Arthur in On the Buses, the brother okay. in law. And in the same scene, in one of the pub scenes, Bob Grant, who is also in On the Buses, is in it as well. In, in what is basically a, a an extra role. I don't think he even speaks 
Um, but he's just sort of in the back. He's just one of the blokes in the pub that Alf. Who is was Bob Grant in on the bus? I'm, I'm looking now, and he's he's credited as man in pub. Yeah, so yeah. Who, exactly. who was Bob Grant in on the buses? Uh, Jack. He's the oh you know, right, the, okay, the, right, the right. best mate, cheeky chappy. Gotcha. Um, <laughs> always with the lady, no. and who can blame them, eh? With that, <laughs> yeah. Uh, so those were the ones uh, that jumped out at me in the in the first film. I think those are the only ones. Mm. I can't remember anything else. Yeah, I mean, my head. can I just say it's? It, I find it very interesting the the roles that you um, kind of go to for for what someone is to you. Because I'm I'm looking up these people as, as you're talking about them. Jeffrey Hughes to me is most significant for being the voice of Paul McCartney in the <laughs> yeah yeah. In in animated Beatles form, well, uh, Yellow Submarine. And yeah, yeah. Do you see? I who's... believe the cartoon. I'm guessing. Or maybe do you see? Else in the yeah, yeah. As the cartoon. But do you see who the voice of Ringo Starr is on in Yellow Submarine? Uh, is it Michael Angelis? Let me have a look. Because <laughs> that would be perfect. Is it, is it going to be Anthony? Whatever his name was. Let's see. Paul Angelis. Paul Angelis. Yeah. So he's he's the one who plays the Randy Skarsky in the next film, which we're about to talk about. Oh wow! I see. Just oh. you know, there's not that many people with a Scouse accent in the '60s. You know, you can't, you just can't <laughs> spread them around too. Acting, yeah. Was that a Scouse accent? Well, yeah. that—that's that, a good—that's a good way for us to lead into the second film, I think, isn't it? Well, to lead in, what happened was the sh- the series had finished in '67. They did the film in '68, and then nothing. Uh, well, actually, they did do a special in 1970 for the election, but then. I think there was no intention to make any more of the series, so why not mm. sell your characters up the river? And then, <laughs> you know, the the second film came out in '72, and it was late '72 that the new the 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 kind of revival of the series happened. But it wasn't anticipated. The series had finished; it was done, and it and it came back as part of that raft at the time of the BBC going, "Oh, we don't want to show black and white stuff, but we can just re- remake our old shows in color." And so. You know, Steptoe and Son got revived, this got revived. Are you being glib there, or did they literally remake old scripts? No, uh, not really remaking old scripts, but just sort of rebooted the shows and brought them back. But there was a lot there was a lot of repetition. There was a lot of not not a shot for shot remake, but a lot of repurposing of storylines. Right. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Well if it, it, i I asked because the second film feels it has the feel of a totally different mentality behind the production and different people putting the money in basically it feels like they're going after different markets they've got different intent it, it just it, it has the feel film. it has mm. the feel of we made the first film because we had an idea and we wanted to kind of give the show something of a send-off the second one feels like someone drove a big truck of money up to the house and we couldn't say no and we just had to kind of churn some shit out to a deadline uh, when i first watched this like so i was watching the series and i watched these along the films along with it and i could not believe that this was written by johnny spate i thought yeah and then it mm. is it, it it feels like it's been handed off to yeah some some other writers that, yeah it feels yeah. like like they'd taken the intellectual property and just done something completely different with it yeah, yeah. which was is i not used the word intellectual advisedly <laughs> yeah which is not out of the question, you know, that that might happen. Oh, but that's yeah. that's not what happened. Johnny Spate not only wrote it, but he's in it. So he was definitely there. He was involved. Mm-hmm. And mm. and Warren Mitchell, uh, who plays Alf Garnett, was 
very closely associated with the character. And like we say, he carried on this character for 30 years, basically. And, you know, a lot of what that character is comes from him. Maybe he only read the parts of the script that he was in. Because it's really like a lot of the Alf Garnet stuff is fairly kind of what we expect. And it's all the the Mike and Rita stuff that is just like, what's going on here? What, what, what's happened? And obviously they haven't yeah. got the same actors, like sort of step one. Well, so this is this is the problem with the film. That, that firstly, we've got different actors playing Mike and Rita, but that I'm I'm all right with that in principle. The the problem is that what Mike and Rita are completely different characters. They're not different actors. They're doing yeah. a completely mm. different thing in the narrative. Yeah, and it's it's not to be clear. It's not that their performance is completely different. It's the way the characters are written and behave is so yeah. utterly different. And it yeah. it completely we spoke about the formula of the show and the setup here and the changes they make to those two characters completely undermines everything that I know yeah. about till death does do part. Like, mm. um, before we get into this on too deep a level, should we kind of give a broad overview of what plot there is? Um, Go on. Uh, all right. So basically they're living in their high rise flat. Yeah. In, in that sense, it is a direct sequel to the first film because in the series, Sol, they never move out. They, they stay in back. the same house in, in Wapping uh, for the entire run. Yeah, so can I just check I've got this right, the timeline of things as I get it, is that the the first film, the first half is set, you know, in the past, so that's mm-hmm. prequel. Mm-hmm. The second half is set in the house, and then that house is where the series is set, but then the movie kind of moves past to the end of, like, after the series where they get yeah, kicked out so. of the house. Yeah. And then this film is set after all of that when they're in a high-rise flat. Is that... That's it. And then the That's ne- the timeline? Okay. And mm-hmm. then the new That's series right. that starts just after this, they're back in the old house. So that never oh, happened. Right. The slum clearance never happened. Huh. Interesting. It's an absolute nightmare if you're, uh, if you're trying to... Well, I, was gonna, I, I don't think people timeline. cared about... Yeah, people didn't care about what was and isn't continuity. You know, people didn't care about that in the 60s and 70s, did they? So yeah, they're in their high-rise flat, living together. Rita's got a job, but Mike hasn't. He's just living on the dole, dossing about in the flat. And really, like, Alf doesn't really have any plot at all in this one. The only sort of story comes from the Mike-Rita plot which is that they have a bit of a fallout because mike is cheating on rita uh categorically mm, and blatantly. rita's yeah <laughs> rita sort of catches them vaguely in the act and then goes off and maybe does or doesn't sleeps with uh, a black guy to get revenge on him and it's just kind of about that that's the point. This is the Mike and Rita film, and I guess I guess there's a decision made there to move it on to the next generation, but that's not what Till Death is Do Part is. I think Mike and Rita film is fine. I, I don't have a problem with that. I, I think the problem here to, to These characters lay it all out Mike there, and Rita. They're not Mike and Rita. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, it's not even that. It's, it's the, the, you know, talk about reprehensible, unlikable characters. Everyone in this film is vile. They, they are, you know, yeah, we, the phrase you guys like, it's a different time. It was a different time. But, like, the passive racism on the show is from everyone. Liberal use of... Uh, it's not very passive in the most part, to be honest with you. Well, yeah, <laughs> I was going to say, liberal, liberal use of um, a word so kind of archaic that, like, 
it's quite jarring to hear it now. Yeah, not people don't even use shocking. it anymore. Not because it's racist, but it's just it's just outdated. It's just so old. It's like <laughs> like when I hear the N word, it's like bloody hell. That's that's a strong, unpleasant, cutting word. But mm. the uh, the C word here, not that C word. The the actually really bad one is. Um, yeah, it's just like oh yeah, I well, it's very that jarring. A... It's very jarring word to hear in a film. But God, it must be forty times, forty or fifty times they use that word. But also, it's not like if it was Alf, and you were like, "Oh, bloody racist Alf," I'd be like, "Okay, well, yeah, it's Mike. It's know, Mike who we've, who we've been led to believe is this progressive guy, and and now suddenly because his wife's cheating on him, even though he's cheating on her, he's all of his all of his principles are gone, and he's just as racist as Alf." I'm pretty sure Rita uses it at least once. Mike uses it throughout. Uh, Mike's friends certainly use it. The women he's mm. sleeping with uh, that aren't Rita use it. I think the first film works with the unpleasantness of Alf because he's he's never presented as in the right. He's always presented as a fool and wrong, and characters call him out on his behaviour. Mm. Whereas in this film, there is a casual acceptance of his behaviour that comes from the fact that the other characters are also... Mm racist and yeah. and also like the whole dynamic of the show to my knowledge and certainly the first film like i say was this kind of progressive v conservative kind of ideologies that you know clash and spar and number one this guy like being completely racist because you know yeah to be fair he's upset that his uh is she his wife at this point is yeah, um yeah cheating on him with a, a black guy but like he goes straight to racism he doesn't uh, you know he doesn't go that well, bloody well, who, how dare he like what's his character like that he's sleeping with a married woman mm. he goes straight to he is black and that is what i'm so so we've obviously we we talk about historical british sitcoms so we've talked quite a bit about racism um okay <laughs> but one thing i'm really keen to do is to take the the heat out of the words. So so we've just talked about that horrible word that they use, and that's jarring. Yeah. But if you take... So the example I was quote is, in Faulty Towers, the major uses the N-word, and that's horrible, and it's like, oh, God, you can't do that. But if you take that word away, the scene works. The scene works because it's a yeah, silly, yeah, yeah, racist yeah. old fool, and, and we're laughing at him. Now, if you take that horrible word out in, in this film... It's still racist. It's still, if you don't use that word, it's still, oh my God, my wife is sleeping with a black guy. This yeah, is the exactly. worst thing that's ever happened. And, and, it's, and you know, it's Kenny Lynch. The black guy is Kenny Lynch, who is an entertainer. He's rich. He's got a Rolls Royce. And that's all really weighted. That's all really weighted about this black guy who has got money. And the word itself is not the issue here. The racism, the racist undertones of the whole sequence yeah. is, is what the problem is. And, and that's not explored either, by the way. That, that whole, the fact that it is Kenny Lynch. It's Kenny Lynch playing himself, essentially. But it's yeah. the fact that it's, it's not just a black guy. It's a very rich and successful black guy. So yeah. there the becomes a point where Alf is like, oh, look, he's in the director's box. He must be really at uh, uh, West Ham. So I, I admire him. But, oh, but hang on. Uh, he is black, though, so I can't admire. Like, there's, we get a little touch of that, mm. but we don't really assess that in any way. That Does that affect the way they think that this is not just a black man, but it's a black man who is, you know, societally speaking, mm. better than them, uh, you know, or higher than them? Does that yeah. affect it? We don't know. We don't get into any of that, really. But but also, you know, like I say, we never get the sense that uh, Mike is upset about the cheating so much as it's cheating with a black man. And mm -hmm. even, uh, even the wife, what's she called, Else? Yeah. Um, she makes it very 
very clear that she doesn't like the fact that she slept with a black man. Like she's a lot more accepting of it, but she sort of says, "Well, it is what it is," which is mm. still really mm. racist and unpleasant. It's still like, okay, you, you know, you're, you're not kind of the the, the 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 difference is this film seems to think that the act of sleeping with a black man as a white woman, a married white woman, is different to the act of sleeping with a different white man as a married white woman, you know? And that's Mm. why it comes across as... It it seems to think that that is dialing this act up to 11. And, you know, certainly I think the way most people these days think of it, it, there's no difference, you know? it's She shouldn't be cheating on him, but he shouldn't be cheating on her as well, you know? (laughs) like If we take the race... if we take the race element out of it, she just she in, in a kind of petty revenge sense decides to go off with another man. Let's say he's white. Yeah. This this whole script still works. Like this this plot element still works. It works a lot better because but, it doesn't have this insidious, yeah, but the, but then savory it, racism. It gets overblown the by the racist stuff, <laughs> so he can't yeah. really get into any of that. <laughs> yeah, but also it's just a stupid plot anyway. Like. And like we say, we, we, these are not Mike and Rita, the characters that we are familiar with from the film, the other film and the series. Mike's meant to be somewhat likable, I think, in the yeah. what I've seen of him. And yeah, here he is just horrible. Like he's, he's, he's got no redeeming features at all. He's an awful man. He's a lazy, like worthless, you know, knobhead up front, which completely undermines the sort of progressive left-wing argument throughout the show and the series it, it kind of has a sense of you know when you're when you're young and the world's ahead of you and you've got this you know strong ideology there's a sense of well look you know i'm we're going to go out and change the world and screw you granddad and mm. it, it's it completely undermines everything we've seen before to see this oh actually he's you know he's now like turning 30 close enough late 20s he's still like sleeping all day in his parents flat he's not even got any desire to like make something more of himself he's quite content to you know go collect his dole money for doing nothing and then spend it immediately what what around the corner spend it on drugs <laughs> go and cheat on his wife Gamble who's out away. working for me, the big problem is that there was always affection and love between Rita and Mike, and that was exactly. contrasted exactly the, the, this abrasive relationship of Alf and Else, and and th- that's that's not just disappeared; it's turned on its head. Exactly, it's really quite unpleasant that he's just you know he's just out cheating on her with with. I think whoever. I think the fact that it's different actors makes it more egregious. But here's a question for you: w- Would well, two questions: Would this have worked? Would this have been different if it had been Una Stubbs and Tony Booth doing the same script? And the second question is, is that why they didn't turn up? Do you know, Alan? I don't know specifically why they said they weren't going to do it. I suspect they read the script, yeah. But <laughs> they they came back for the later series, you know? The, the, yeah, they, yeah. they were still prepared to do the characters. But I, I don't think you can underestimate how much those actors bring to the characters, especially in the early yeah. days when those characters were being built how much mm. Tony Booth is in Mike, when they're going at each other and arguing, it feels like two people arguing because they embody those characters so much. Yeah. It doesn't feel scripted. Also, the relationship between Mike and Rita, there's a real beautiful chemistry between Tony Booth and Eunice Stubbs. Uh, the, the, they do seem like they get on well with each other. They're comfortable with each other uh, mm. rather than two actors who mm. are you know, playing mm. at it. So yeah. I think that they, that does bring a lot to it, and obviously that's missing. 
But yeah, the these characters are so far removed. I don't know if it was an element of well, hey, we've got different actors, so let's try and do something different. Let's like bring something mm. different to it, and like, we'll oh, what what do people want? Crap, sex comedy. Okay, yeah, I can do that. Yeah, yeah. no problem. Yeah. But it's but it's not like like you keep saying sex comedy as if you know Mike's running around pinching bums and it's you know well, light hearted even in a completely. Exactly really he, doing. He, ch- he has he sees that woman no, walking along by the canal or the river and and, and goes chasing after her. <laughs> he has an affair with one woman in a pub who is clearly happy to have a kind of no strings attached but like ongoing relationship with this married guy yeah but we, we we very much get the impression that that is one of many like or that he would be happily go to well, someone else the next day like there's not it's not like he's just really connected with this woman and he's like considering leaving his wife no i know yeah that's the implication but it's it's not like a you know it doesn't play like a sex comedy to me it just plays like a guy again it plays closer to kitchen sink drama it's just not pleasant it's well, what just do you a guy... need for a sex comedy what 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 is it missing well Lightheartedness. Apart from boobs. <laughs> I, I'd say comedy, but like obviously this film doesn't quite do the best job in that department all round. But like, like I say, like a, an attempt at comedy, a lighthearted tone. I don't feel like any of him cheating or. or no, going I know around. what you mean actually, but it has the, it has the language of a sex comedy in that we have a close up of buttocks and then they kind of scamper off after her. But yeah, you're right. It's not really fun. Like a sex comedy has to be fun, doesn't it? It has to be like, yeah, yeah, we're getting our underway. We sorted. It's, it's actually Trumpet. quite dark, yeah. And and I, I I think it would be a lot less pleasant, like you, to go back to what you were saying before. If it was the original cast, I think it would be worse. I think it'd be nastier and less pleasant to see, because here there's a sense of well, it's not really them, so they're different people altogether. Mm. Just to clarify something, Tony Booth, the actor who who plays Mike in the 70s was in the confessions films he was like the mm. he was the mate so robin Asquith was the main guy and he played the mate like we have a mate in this mm. and he so i'm not saying he's above it but i think he would have had enough respect for that character to go hang on this is not this that is character. not this is not what we do yeah, yeah. because because as we say you know I, what i see of them you get the impression that they're in quite a happy healthy relationship those two um, yeah. certainly in and, the series yeah and and if we're gonna portray the the deterioration, the kind of you know that relationship falling apart, then that kind of needs to be what the film is about, and yeah, and, and that's not. not what this film is. This this film just feels like the symptom of a an already toxic relationship, and yeah, and the yeah. weirdest thing is the the way it all kind of comes together at the end is that they essentially they're essentially just kind of happy with having a a kind of open relationship like they they both kind of go well i didn't cheat on you but we know that he certainly did it's implicit that she did and they're just kind of like make their peace with it all right we'll just kind of get on with our lives maybe that's what people did back then because people didn't get divorced they just you know but but it's but it's not even a sense of like Oh, we're gonna change or anything. There's no remorse no, 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 no at any point, no. and and that's you another one, thing. I that, one. Let's move, move. Yeah, there's no remorse at all from Mike at any point. It's not like Rita makes him see the error of his ways. It's just no. like, in fact, like after he's caught, he still goes and sleeps with the other woman. Like it, it like yeah. that night, he he sp- spends all night out with that woman. 
And then he gets in the next day and is shocked to find that Rita also didn't come home that night. Like that's how he learns mm. that she might have done the same thing. But it's so yeah, it's it's just bizarre. And can I and, can I um, let's change the subject slightly here? So we're talking about relationships between these two, and um, we've got this weird subplot in this film. They're up in a high rise, and their neighbours are John Lemessurier and Patsy Byrne. Oh yes, and this is just this. It doesn't really go anywhere, but it's just this really weird relationship where he's really controlling and he does everything. He won't even let her go to the shops, and she's just like this infantilized woman but I, I don't really know what the point of it was it didn't go anywhere <laughs> well, i think it's the way i read it was that it's controlling in a like not in a sadistic way but in a kind of he's trying to be such a perfect husband that she's starting to find it overbearing like he he's cooking everything for her he won't let her even go yeah, shopping she says, can, doing... she says can i can i cook tonight we've talked about this dear <laughs> yeah and and i think I think the idea is, wouldn't it be funny if Alf Garnett's next-door neighbour was the perfect husband and was the loveliest man in the world who, like, does everything for his wife and, you know, blah, 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 blah. But well, then they take that... Hypothetically, but, then they, but that's not what this yeah. is. <laughs> but that's what I mean, it doesn't... It, because then they take it to the extreme that she is, like, living a, a hellish existence because she doesn't get to do anything and he controls every little detail of their lives by doing everything. Yeah, I think and, you're, um, you're trying to find too much in that. that there's not meant to be there. To be honest. I, well, no, I, 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 think that's, I think that's the seed of the idea. It's just not done very well. I don't know I, what else it would possibly be. I don't be. think he... I, I don't. I didn't get the impression that he was trying to do everything because he wanted to give his wife the easiest life she could possibly have. I think he was a control freak who was just like, well, no, don't do anything because you're not going to do it right. I, I need to be doing yeah, to be done my it, way. Yeah. It's just another form of abuse, basically. This whole this whole this whole film is men abusing their wives in different <laughs> ways. <laughs> well, he goes out to the same job more or less that Alf does. Um, but we, no, no, no. No, he's a bank man. They walk. No, sorry, sorry. They walk to work together. That's what I'm thinking of. But, but that, then, that's it. Know, they... They're neighbors, but they that doesn't really tally either. He's a bank manager. Alf's a dock worker, and and they it's... make a big thing about him clearly being a lot, you know, better off than Alf. And it's like, right, would he also be relocated from some shithole in Essex to this high rise flat, which is the yeah. implication here? Mm. And like, the film makes it quite clear that they're like not in a particularly nice flat either like they've been you know put in yeah. a crap one and it, it... and this guy's a bank manager back when that meant something you know it's like <laughs> that was a that was a that was the captain mannering's job you know that's the, that's yeah. the yeah. job that is respected in society so yeah. it doesn't really i don't quite know no, what that was. and yeah it doesn't go anywhere other than it's just it gives us someone for Alf Garnet to be up against so that we can see how annoying Alf Garnet is, basically. But that's it. I think yeah. I think the character is meant as a contrasting mirror up to Alf Garnet. And maybe I'm reading it wrong and thinking that it, it's come from a seed of an idea of, ooh, like the perfect husband. Maybe it's just meant to be the total opposite. Alf is this crass, brutish knobhead and the other guy's very prim and proper yeah. and together. Yeah. Maybe be that's careful, the Be careful the what you wish comparison. for, because, you know. Yeah. yeah, they don't really get into it or do it <laughs> but then uh, you know how they got trapped in the lift a couple of times because there was a lot of power cuts in the 70s that was the uh, timely reference there um yeah well you know the third there was a third guy that they got trapped in the lift with and they were playing cards mm -hmm. and discussing politics and stuff mm -hmm. yeah do you know who that was who was played that, who was that? character uh, on, tell us. <laughs> no? it was john bird john bird as in bird and fortune bremner bird and fortune yeah 
Okay. But he's remember. much younger and quite fat, and it doesn't look like him at all, but it is him, I assure you. Okay, that is interesting. <laughs> well. And he was just sort of up and coming in the 60s satirical scene. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't look like him. I'm looking at a picture of him now. It does not look like him at all. I can tell, but only because you told me. If we're if we're talking about um, little cameos from people, I I really didn't have this on my 2022 bingo card, but um, we're getting the second mention of Arthur Askey on this podcast <laughs> in, in the year so far. Yeah, he's in there. Yeah, there's quite a few little celebrity cameos like as themselves. So yeah, Arthur Askey, Max Bygraves, Eric Sykes. Yeah, it really felt like, oh, who's a fan of the show that we can get to turn up in the movie this time? <laughs> well, Eric, I, I mean, Eric Sykes, Johnny Spate and Eric Sykes worked together I was quite considerably. Johnny Spate wrote for them, didn't he? Yeah, and Johnny Spate would have written, certainly in this world of comedy, I don't know specifically the people, definitely Eric Sykes. Mm. But yeah, he knew them all. Kenny Lynch had been in the show in the series before as well. Wasn't Eric Sykes in Curry and Chips as well? Yeah. You've also got the uh, gratuitous cameo of... Um, Bobby, Bobby Moore, Moore, is it? The footballer? Yeah, George England Best. captain Bobby Moore. Yeah. yeah, yeah, George Best as well. That that felt really like, how can we get these two in? I bet they're big fans of the show and blah, 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 blah. That, that's the sort of thing I mean. It, it, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, Bobby Moore was a, a West Ham player, so that's kind of like, that's a big part of the Alf Garnet thing is that he's a West Ham supporter. So at least you that will make sense. George Best is just to get George Best in. <laughs> well, yeah, George Best. That's he's the most gratuitous. Yeah, George one Best was film. George yeah. Best was the most famous footballer in the world at that point. Yeah, you know, he was he was the David Beckham of showing my age there. He was the David Beckham of his day. I don't know who the David Beckham of today is. I've <laughs> he no hasn't idea. played for twenty years. <laughs> but yeah, yeah. but um, the Bobby Moore scene. I mean, it, it feels like you know Tony Blair. Catherine Tate comic relief <laughs> sketch. It, it's like mm, they've mm. got a celebrity for you know an hour. They've just wheeled yeah. him into this room. It's very you know how can we write a couple of gags about? All right, mm. it's in this in this scene as well where we get Johnny Spate, the writer. He has a little cameo. He plays the kind of the rambling man in the pub who's just talking to them, and they tell him to go away. Yeah, <laughs> that's it. <laughs> Um, what else happens? There's a scene where Alf drops acid by mistake. Oh, yeah. oh yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so no. Let me let me clarify this now. So, so Mike has Mike has bought some drugs, but decided not to take them. Brought them home, and then almost gets caught. Someone walks in, so he sprinkles it on the butter. <laughs> yeah. No, it's a sugar cube. It's a sugar cube. Oh, it's a sugar cube. Okay. And so he right, hides right, right. it in the butter dish because he thinks no one's going to look at a butter dish all day. So uh, that would be a great place to hide it. So Alf puts yeah. the sugar in his tea and hilarity ensues. I see. Yeah. He takes, yeah, he takes one sip of his tea and then, as we know, acid works in Instantaneously. A kind of, you know, three minute time delay and then suddenly you go and turn into like a bird. <laughs> that, felt like, that felt like a very 1970 reference. <laughs> he, like, he, just, he just shouts some gibberish words. Everyone's like, what? And then, of course, um, acid, as we know, also works by kind of laying a kind of uh, VR over the top of reality. <laughs> so that like, when you go to the pub, for example, instead of seeing all the people stood around drinking, you see a load of um, Jamaican fellas banging <laughs> the steel drums and doing a limbo dance. <laughs> Well, look, if we look get, and if we get if, the opportunity to see a blacked up Warren Mitchell oh, yeah. in this uh, little drug sequence, 
and if and if you're uh you know if if you are a, a racist it it kind of me it makes you quite friendly and nice which yeah. again there's a seed of a good idea in there yeah yeah oh alf takes acid and now he's loving and nice to his wife and he's not racist and he's getting along with black people yeah that's the, the that's the only time I, i've watched a lot of till death is due part recently and that's the only time i've ever seen him kiss Alf. Is when he's yeah. his tits. <laughs> but it, but it's like the it, the problem is it, again it's too messy because that's a nice idea, but then it doesn't quite work if he's also jumping around on the balcony, nearly falling off outside, thinking he's a bird, and Mike yeah. has to coax him inside. They seem quite unconcerned about him <laughs> walking on the yeah, balcony. Yeah, that as well. <laughs> yeah, nearly falling off at one point. Not you know not like he's in control of walking around on the balcony. Like he's you know. <laughs> And nearly then, dies and, the, and the, the, yeah the response to his behavior is just like ugh, he's going off on one <laughs> as opposed to oh my god this man's having some sort of stroke we need to get him some medical help <laughs> well i mean mike and rita know what's wrong with him don't they i think yeah, is the yeah, idea yeah, yeah. and uh Elf and else is just oblivious <laughs> she's she's she just thinks she, she says <laughs> she says like oh has he had a bit to drink and then mike says something like it's not drink or whatever but and she's sort of like oh whatever well, Sol, but yeah, you're right. That, so, mm-hmm. I've never taken acid. I'm pretty sure you haven't either. So, no. uh, Gareth, <laughs> <laughs> is this an accurate representation? <laughs> um, you, you went to a few raves in your time. <laughs> is that is this because usually with these these conversations, I'm a bit older than you. I remember this. I remember that. I'm a bit older than you. I remember taking acid. Oh yeah, <laughs> back in the seventies. I, I, I took I took acid when the, the day I got my GCSE results. <laughs> Jesus Christ, that's a pretty. Very, it was very pretty big reasonable in the, uh, time to do mid nineties. Was that a celebration or that a commemoration? Yeah, of course it was <laughs> a celebration. But uh, my, my listen, my memory of it was it was lots of fun and I giggled lots. That's I certainly didn't start climbing up on balconies and. You're the lie. ecstasy generation, Gareth. That's, that's I, yeah, I am exactly the ecstasy generation. That's right. That's right. I te- I'm 12 years clean and sober, but I did my time. <laughs> I did my time in the trenches. Oh my God, my mum's going to listen to this, isn't she? Oh, she's not going to like that. <laughs> uh, if, uh, if taking acid was like this, it, it'd probably be all right. I might give it a go. Make sure you're right. Make sure you're not near a balcony. That, be all right. I, I think you'd love it. Yeah, yeah. It's terrific. It's Drugs are really good. <laughs> They're just a bit Moorish. That's generally the problem. Does anything else happen in this plot that I'm I'm forgetting? Because I, I, it's very no, disjointed. That's, you know. that's kind of it. I mean, at the very end, they go to bed and then Alf sets no, fire sets to on, the. There's a whole fire thing. Yeah, to just a total nonsense at the end. Just. Yeah. Five minutes at the end for no reason. Yeah, yeah, he sets fire to the bed by smoking in bed. Well, we said before that this this is this film's all about Mike and Rita, not about Alf and Els, and and that's why we're struggling. Like we said, how the film ends is Mike and Rita get back together, however clumsily that's done. There isn't really a any plot strands to tie up with Alf and Els because they they've not had any plot strands. She she kind of gives Alf a bit of comeuppance that you know. She sprays him down with a fire extinguisher and he gets really mad and she's clearly aiming it at him after a certain point and having fun doing it. So I suppose that there is a degree of closure for something there. That is rather the level that the series works at as well. Like his comeuppance is like someone throws a bucket of water on him or something. You know, it's like that's what you get for being a racist. (laughs) But, But even then it's like, you know, really the comeuppance there is he 
he gets piss all over himself. Like, <laughs> you know, that's worse. For he the, grabs the, second the uh, time chamber the pot under the... Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I tell you what, though, talk about the filmmaking here, and and I guess I'll say, you know, whereas I said the first film was very cinematic and felt like a film, this doesn't feel that way at all. It feels just like, you know, let's just film, stick a camera in front of it, and get what's on the page on camera. It feels a lot more conventionally shot and less exciting. But um, the the special effects work on that fire, he's full on sticking his hands in that fire. He's he's full on grabbing at like the chamber it's pot on fire and letting go of it and like you know singeing his hands and and I was watching it like oh that's actually pretty good you'd never get that now because it would be all CGI yeah because you he was wouldn't... like well we can't just set the place on fire and then put the actor in it yeah that'd be crazy well, it's, it, that's it you you like you might just about for a film with a proper budget be able to have a little fire on the bed but you wouldn't have your actor getting in like getting right in it sticking the hands in. And that was obviously fine back then. I, I, I guess, you know, my guess is Warren Mitchell was just game and going yeah, for it. I don't yeah. think they asked him to stick his hands in it. But yeah. like, I don't think I don't think you'd even give an actor the opportunity to do that in this day and age. No. Like, it, 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 health and safety, gone mad. Eh? <laughs> Can't do anything these days. Oh. Well, speaking of the filmmaking, one thing that jumped out at me were the scenes with uh, Alf and uh, Roy Kinnear, who was just like his workmate. Uh, they're they're walking and talking and they filmed them all basically with a camera in front of them and Joffrey's just tracking back as they walk forward Mm. in a kind of Aaron Sorkin kind of way. But (laughs) it was, um, I thought that was nice. You know, it was, and and you know, it just let them play off each other. It was just like one long, one long take, didn't break it up. I suspect it was because they didn't have time to film it all shot reverse shot. It was just like, look, we can only do one take. (laughs) Then we've got to get out. Maybe. uh, Yeah. Yeah. Well, that is, of course, my uh, my favorite episode of The West Wing is um, the one where the what's he called the president and the Bartlett. Bradley Whitford are just yeah. walking back and forth, shouting bollocks to each other. <laughs> oh yeah, uh, <laughs> bollocks, bollocks. Um, yeah. I think Aaron Sorkin kind of dropped the ball that day. <laughs> witty dialogue. But yeah, that, so Roy Kinnear, that is sort of reprising. Well, not reprising, because I think he comes into the later series, not in the earlier series, as just a kind of workmate. He, he makes occasional appearances. And also we have Joan Sims here, who, mm. when we when we did our episode, Gareth, we didn't really talk about Joan Sims, but she plays, you know, Grandma. She plays Gran. I, I looked this up. She's three years younger than Warren Mitchell, and she's 26 years younger than <laughs> Dandy Nichols. But she, she plays Gran. But it's obviously a nice little character role that she's she's doing, and she does it in the series like quite regularly, without being a proper character. Is this the old woman who goes to the cafe with yeah. Else yeah. and is clearly a younger woman doing like an old person yeah. voice? Yeah. And I found really jarring. Because she's doing a real like no one actually talks like this. <laughs> but then she's opposite like an actual old woman, which just makes <laughs> it all the more clear. Yeah. So you really sounded like James Acaster then. <laughs> that was weird but yeah so so Joan Sims plays that it's, that's obviously it feels a bit like when um, Spike Milligan turns up in, in Brownface it, oh, it feels God. like this is a character she does and they've just written it in because Let's it's a fun kind in. of a character she does which would work okay in a sketch that. show but yeah. not, in a, not in a sitcom it's you know if it's supposed to be I quite like it reality. though I quite like what she adds 
to the scenes and it's sort of that next generation up. Mm. I, I do quite enjoy it. And the way she, she always dips her sandwich in a glass of gin. <laughs> I, don't, don't, I don't know, really get what. But is that just because she hasn't got any teeth? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I, I think that would have been that would have been relatable. I think I think audiences would have seen that and thought, oh yeah, I know the woman at the club who does that. Yeah, yeah. And she, they always do the joke, um, what are you having? A gin. Do you want anything in it? Another gin. Yeah, they do that every time she's, <laughs> she's yeah. there. Uh, so just just one more um, other sort of guest appearance. I want to ask you about this, Gareth, because this is a person who I kind of know, but he's a bit too out of my time to really know what he is. Uh, mm. But we have, as the milkman, Roy Hood. Roy oh, Hood, yeah. yes. Yes, the news hoodlines. See, I know Roy Hood, but the, I haven't got that thing where I can place him and go, oh, I know him from that. So, so what yeah, is he? Do you know what? I, I haven't really got a smart answer for you, but I mean, I think of Roy Hood as he's been on Radio Four forever. You know, he's he's had various sketch shows and things on on the radio, but he is he, he has appeared in countless TV shows mm. and films. He's a bit like Bernard Cribbins in a sense. You know, he's yeah. kind of one of those those faces that keeps coming back and you see and and always good value always always great at what they do even if they're only in for a couple of scenes mm. i liked i like the milkman scene because um i did yeah just an injection of energy that is lacking elsewhere so he film. plays this sort of um slightly camp milkman who um and this is a scene that we've seen in the series as well where the milkman's also the bookie mm. so he's mm. they're adding up all the what she ordered she ordered the milk and she had the eggs and you had you had a shilling on the 340 at Epsom. Yeah. And, yeah. You know, well, I really nice like that. Uh, and I feel like that's probably, a, yeah. you know, really taken from reality that you, if you're mm. the person who's yeah, going yeah, around yeah. the community, going to everyone's house, you're going to you're mm. gonna start getting your side hustle on. In so they just ways. sell drugs now, milkman. Yeah. That's what they said. That's apparently, that's what, that's what someone told me. Yeah, because we got an, an advert through the door for milk deliveries. And someone told me, drugs, front for drugs. And I thought, oh. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll have two litres of blue top, please. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> where, do you, where do you get acid when you're 16 and you've just finished your GCSEs? <laughs> My mate, yeah. well, do you know what? I'm not going to say his name because I'm not a nart. <laughs> <laughs> so let, let's let's tie off the Afghanistan yeah, saga good. here. Let's rate it. I I thought this film was despicable, obviously for the, all the reasons we've outlined, and it's not mm. it's it's not true to the series. It's not funny. It's just kind. Of, it's it's aged very badly as well, but the series has to an extent. Yeah. Can I can I rate before you guys do? Because I I. I think I'm gonna go way too. Um, I'm gonna go way too high here yeah, now yeah. that we've spoken through it because um, I'm gonna give it a five out of ten. And right. really, having just spoken about it, I feel like that's a bit too generous, really. <laughs> but but I I guess you know it, I did find it very watchable for the scene with the milkman, for example. Little moments like that kind of mm. carry me through it, while I did find other aspects of it just reprehensible. Yeah, I th but yeah, I so think... there we go. That's me. I'm giving it a five. I think because I've watched the whole series and I'm a bit more emotionally connected to those characters that are being completely defiled here, it, it, it's, it yeah. seems even worse. I gave it a two. Maybe the two was, the one was for Roy Hood. I think the problem with this film is that it's not really sure what it's trying to be and it's not really good at doing that. I think the problem with this film is it's not really trying to be anything. It's well, just, it's, yeah. if, is it a sex comedy? Not really. And if it is, it's nowhere near as good as those confessions type films. Is it trying to be a kitchen sink drama? I hope not, because it's really failing at that. But the problem, the real problem, trying is, to fill the real problem is that it's not, it's not a till death is due part story. That's yeah. the, that's the problem. 
But yeah. okay, I'm assessing it as a film independently. I don't think it's a very good film either. I'm going to be giving it four out of ten. Fair, I think. Yeah, it, it feels like a first draft, doesn't it? it? That they've kind of figured out with a bit of. And I know we sort of banged on gaps. about it earlier, but but the excessive, repeated use of that racial term was yeah. It was was horrible. <laughs> I also yeah. I also oh, noticed they yeah. seem to make a point of swearing more as well. They're using the word bloody. Mm. just uh you know like as punctuation um and it, yeah. and again it just feels like oh we're allowed to do what we want now and oh this, so this is what you've wanted to do the whole time yeah well, thankfully the bbc stopped you doing it well it's weird isn't it because i i think most sitcoms turned movies do this i can't really think of an example where they didn't take some degree of liberty with the the freedom to swear that they're given. Mm. Like even even the Simpsons movie has a real like oh bless him kind of. Uh, you know how in America goddamn is a swear word. So there's this big moment at the end of the Simpsons movie where Marge goes, throw the goddamn bomb! And it's meant to be like, oh, Marge swore. <laughs> but like, to British Maybe there, viewers, is, is it doesn't even register. Maybe a South Park movie where they sort of come in. Well, that's, that's from the first <laughs> but, but that kind of what I'm getting at here is that all the examples that I could think of, certainly contemporary things that do it, they do it with some degree of purpose. Even that Simpsons gag that I just mentioned, the joke is that it's Marge. Like, the most yeah, meek, yeah. like, prim proper of the cast yeah. is the one who swears. Um, the South Park movie, it's all about the swearing. That's, like, the film is literally about a war that's set in motion because of swearing. So, you know, they're not doing it just in a puerile, hee-hee-hee, look what we can do kind of way. And I think this film is. Uh, but then maybe that's a product of 30, 40 years of uh, comedy you know, developing and standing on the shoulders of giants, perhaps. Maybe it's not quite fair to hold this up to modern standards in that way. But mm. yeah. So, Sol, are you are you tempted to watch the series? Um not really. I I, I I like I say, I watched one episode back when I was going through all these Britcom movies, making a real point of getting through them, I would typically do like the first episode of the show just for a bit of context and then the movie because I couldn't be bothered watching the whole thing and I, I prefer the series. I think it just has a better energy to it. The first the first few seasons, the first few series that are like the kind of the real what it was all about. Uh yeah. I, I think are very exciting. The later stuff is is fun, but it, it just doesn't have the edge anymore. Yeah. I mean I, I, I'm just I'm just having a glimpse now and yeah, the ratings really do drop down on IMDB if you just look at the individual episode ratings. Seasons or series six and seven are so all your, like your obsession five with to... ratings. <laughs> well no, it's just interesting. I'm saying it's like it's clearly um The wisdom of crowds, is that what you're gonna say? You yeah, your opinion is not a fringe one. It's clearly kind of the yeah. the you know, broad mainstream opinion. Um mm. Well, in the in the in the very later series, Sol, uh, the wife character, the the actor who played her, she got quite ill and she had to drop out, and so they started changing and mucking about with the kind of right. thing. So it was all falling apart, and then and then they ended up doing two different sequel series, and it and it kept going through to the nineties, yeah. you know, with uh, without well, with only with just just with Al Garnet basically out of the main principal cast. It, it's it's going to be weird, that isn't it? Because there's obviously he was playing an older character than he was, so he had makeup on, then he got to a point where they didn't have to age him up anymore. Yeah. And then he gets to the point where he's playing that character old, and it's just kind of weird to think. Like, we, 
like Alan Partridge, Steve Coogan's yeah. doing that. He used to they used to age him up with makeup. Now he is kind of Alan Partridge's <laughs> age, so he plays him without all the makeup on, and he looks a lot younger as a result because yeah. he's ultimately a <laughs> Hollywood actor <laughs> um, who's you know doing relatively well. Mm. But it's it's weird to think, isn't it, that we're going to start getting old Alan Partridge. Like, we're going to see Alan Partridge through yeah. probably for as long as Steve Coogan's alive, you know? I imagine he'll be dipping in and out. It's the same with Still Game, you know? They don't really yeah, yeah. <laughs> need as much yeah. makeup as they used to. <laughs> yeah, completely, yeah. This is this is the only... Of, of this series, this is the only sitcom we're doing that has a film spin-off, so this is the one. Is that right? Yeah. What else are you doing? I know you've done Red Dwarf, or you're doing Red Dwarf. We've done Red Dwarf, which has had kind of films. Not out yet. I was going to say Red Dwarf basically ended up doing its movie as a as a TV special. Well, we've just because Red Dwarf's so big, there's so much to talk about. We've decided we're just going to do the first two series. Um, So we've just we've just tackled those, and then we'll like we did with Only Fools and Horses. We'll do the later ones. Do them in eras. Uh, yeah, so we're doing Sean's show, which was a Sean Hughes vehicle from the early '90s, quite obscure one. That one we're doing to the Manor Born. Okay. And New Statesman, which is at Rick Mail. Yeah, not a huge fan of that from what I've seen. Uh, and then we're doing Extras. Oh, okay. And that kind of had a almost basically TV movie yeah. in the form of its finale as well. The, the 90 minute episode. Anyway, uh, till death us do part. Thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, indeed. Thank you for listening. And if you'd like to hear more about Till Death Was Do Part, and when we go through the whole series on the British Sitcom History Podcast, uh, look that up if you like to listen. And we obviously have details on all the types of sitcoms as well. I'm sure you'll find something you're interested in. Go and check it out. And look us up at BritcomPod on Instagram and Twitter. But if you're more of just a diminishing returns kind of person, well then, just thank you for listening. And we will see you next time. Bye-bye.